And so if you have your Bibles, it'll also be projected overhead. It's going to come from the book of Exodus chapter 20. Okay, Exodus chapter 20, the first four verses. Let's give our full attention to this. I'll read it for us. It's my joy to bring to you God's word. Chapter 20, verses 1 through 4. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. This is the introduction to the Ten Commandments, which apply to us throughout all generations. It's a part of God's character. It's his moral law for all of his people to keep to this day. Uh, in my love relationship with Sunny, as we were married about 17 years ago, uh, I used to tell her every day, Sunny, I love you, I love you, I love you, and used to keep that on really thick, and on no matter what occasion, I'd tell her different ways, verbally. Uh, audibly how much I love her. And about three or four years into our marriage, I started to realize that wasn't working. No matter how many times I told I love her, she exhibited signs that she did not actually believe that I loved her. And she exhibited signs that she didn't feel loved. And I think around that time, I dared to ask, Sonny, why is it that you seem unhappy? Why is it that you don't think I love you? And she answered the question by basically telling me, Harold, you need to talk less and do more. You need to speak less. Please stop just telling me how much you love me. You need to clean up the house. You're a dirty, messy person. And I began to realize that what I had been doing, because I'm so self-centric, is that I've been trying to communicate my love for Sunny in the way that I like to receive it myself, words of affirmation, verbal words of encouragement. But I had never even bothered to ask, what was Sunny's love language? I had never bothered to even inquire, in what way does she receive and appreciate love best? And for my wife, truth be told, it's not words of affirmation, it's acts of service. Please keep the house clean. Speak less and do more at home. Now, this morning, my friends, I wonder how many of you have ever asked this with God? How many of us have really ever inquired? Do my ways and my expressions and my instincts about how I should best love God, does it register on the other end as love of God? Do my ways, my style, my expressions of worshiping God, trying to show him how much God I love you, does that actually move and please the heart of God? Oh, this is a ginormous question, is it not? And there's nothing more important than in God's people trying to show and express the love of God 
than in the worship of God. How we worship God is central to how we want to show our love for God. And so today we're going to tackle a question of liturgy. Liturgy. Oh, not the sexiest topic in the world, but crucial. Liturgy means an order to your worship service. We call it service because we are about the business of serving someone greater than ourselves, someone superior. Liturgy is an order to our worship service of God. And by the way, every worship, every worship service has a liturgy. It has some kind of order. It's just a question of can we get better at our liturgy? Is our liturgy any good? Does our order of worship really move and please the heart of God? And does it translate and is it received on the other end? Our great audience of one, the one who is actually deserving of all of this Sunday after Sunday and throughout the entirety of our lives, is our order to our worship service loving and pleasing and moving to the heart of God. So this morning, we're going to go over four guiding principles, four guiding principles. They all start with an R. First, God actually tells us how he wants us to worship him. So the first principle is that it is regulated, regulated. There's regulations to it. We just read it in the Ten Commandments. The first is verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. So the first commandment tells us who to worship. The first commandment tells us the only worthy object of our worship. The first commandment makes it unmistakably clear he is the exclusive supreme object. There is no one else who ought to be worshipped. So the first commandment, God clearly lays out, this is who you should worship. It is the Lord God, the triune God. The second commandment goes on and reads, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth or even in the waters below. The second commandment, God sequentially, I mean just right away, tells us this is who you should worship, and then he actually tells us, he prescribes, he reveals it to us. Now this is how, how, how you should worship. God tells us his love language. He's telling us this is how I want my people to worship. Don't try to package me. Don't try to conceptualize me. Don't try to make a physical, visual image. Don't bow before human imaginations of me. God is far too infinite and great. He is spirit. He is eternal. God tells us, gives us some prescriptions and regulations in how he wants us to worship him. In Leviticus chapter 10, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, they were temple priests. They offered a sacrifice to God one day, and quote-unquote, it was an unauthorized fire. That's how the English, translation, uh, English Standard Version translates. It was an unauthorized fire. Do you know what happened to Nadab and Abihu? God immediately struck them dead. Their fire offering to God backfired. You see, they presumed that their worship to God, their service to God, would be pleasing to God, but they disregarded God's own command and how God wanted them to worship him. They thought that as long as their hearts were in the right place, you have good intentions, you have religious instincts, 
well, God would be pleased, but not on this occasion. Not in Leviticus 10. This strange, unauthorized fire backfired. Regulated. Regulated. Uh, Did you know that even in how you love God and express your love for God and how you worship God, God actually tells us how there's regulations to it? Oh, I know this flies in the face of, but pastor, what are you talking about right now? I just want to be me. Are you kidding me? I want to be free to be me. Let me be me. And this is not just an issue in how I worship God. This has become a way of life. Nobody should tell me how I should be me. I know best about what me is, so I should be me. All right, that's fine. I understand this become a way of life. Can I tell you what the problem with that is? It's not just in the worship of God. Do you know that you'll never be good at loving someone else that way? Oh, just let me be me. Don't tell me how to not be me. Do you know that you're never going to be good at serving and loving someone else? You know, as a church who learns from and loves the spirit and the teachings of the Reformation. We want to be reformed in at least two ways. In at least two ways. Number one, we want to be reformed in recovering the biblical gospel. There's nothing more central, more important. That's why we're called Christ Central. We want to recover the purity, the truth, and the power and the liberation of the biblical gospel according to the Holy Scriptures. It's a recovery task. But here's second. To be a reformed people, a reformed church, doesn't just mean we go into the past, go into the scriptures, and recover the purity of the gospel, although that is central. Number two, to be reformed means we are continually reforming. Continually reforming. That means adjusting, learning, and repenting. Real reformers don't ever feel like they have arrived. Real Reformed people don't ever think that we have found the answer to all the problems and all the questions. So for instance, in how we worship to be Reformed according to Holy Scriptural standards, it means we want to continue to learn under the Scriptures of how we can best love and worship God. So as a Reformed church, of course, we take all our cues from Scripture. All the elements of our worship service should be scriptural. They should be simple, too. Simple just means what I find in the New Testament early church, those elements that they did to worship God, I feel like we can't go wrong. If we do what the early church did in the Bible, I know that this moves and pleases the heart of God. So we do singing and praising. So we do praying. So we do the sacraments, baptism and Lord's Supper. We do, of course, the preaching and the teaching of God's word, God's word. And then we do take collection, offerings, offerings to support the church and to spread it for mercy and evangelism. We want to keep it simple, though. We don't want to add too many other things because I know at least those five things appear in the Holy Scriptures. So we want to be scriptural. We want to be simple. And, of course, these are five things that are spiritual. In the worship of God, who is spirit, what most please pleases and moves the heart of God is that we offer spiritual service by faith. We don't want to complicate and add too many things to that. Now, you see, under these regulations, under this simplicity, 
Reformed people, though, would say, well, we're going to do those things. We're going to be simple. We're going to stick to that. But there's a lot of room within that realm while we do the things that we know are found in Scripture, how we go about doing each thing. There's a lot of room that depends on practical application and culture. So, for example, we should sing and praise God. Yes. Well, how long? At what time should we do that? How loud? How soft? Any instruments? Is it okay? No instruments. Who should lead those songs? What kinds of songs? And I want you to be very careful to distinguish. You see, there are principles that are scriptural, but those are different from practical applications. There are biblical standards that are scriptural, but it may differ from culture and culture and time practical applications. And as soon as some people come around and say, well, the way we do it here, you see in Los Angeles at 10 o'clock at Hope University at Christ Central, we think this is the absolute way, the best way, the only way, it's our way or the highway. Now, as soon as you do something like that, you're still then adding to the regulations that God has prescribed and given to us. We have to be very careful of that. But if you really want to move and express the love of God through your worship of God, we ought to pay attention to how God himself tells us, well, this is how I want you to worship me. Regulated. Here's second. Here's second. A second guiding principle. It ought to be responsive. It is responsive. We find this in Exodus chapter 20 and throughout the entirety of the scriptures. All religious worship services, incantations, procedures, rituals, routines, rites, any kind of motions or acts, name them all, all pagan, all religious. I'm talking not Christian worship services, in essence, are designed for you, the worshiper, to work God over. Here's what I mean by that. Depending upon how you worship, it's going to get your God to do what you want that God to do for you. You see, it's transactional. It's manipulative. It's actually transactional. It's business. You're doing business. Manipulation, and it's also very exhausting, is it not? Because you've got to perform. All religious and pagan worship services revel in shouts and incantations and formulas and performance Performances to get your God to do something for you. I'll give you a perfect example of this. The prophets of Baal in the Old Testament, they were singing and dancing, they were shouting. And they were having a contest, a showdown with the prophet Elijah at Mount Carmel. And what did the prophets of Baal do in their worship service to get their God to show up and do what they wanted their God to do? They ended up literally cutting themselves into a bloody mess. They ended up cutting themselves into a bloody mess. Because you see, in all religious service, you have to summon God to get his attention. You got to bleed out. You got to act. You're on stage. You better do it all out or else your God may not end up doing what you want him to do. Do you know how Christian worship service is utterly distinct? Christians worship and respond to a God. You don't have to work him over. You respond to a God who's already worked for you. And you know what Christians worship? We worship a God who showed up in the flesh in Jesus Christ, who himself became a bloody mess. 
Christians don't have to cut themselves into a bloody mess to get God to pay attention to you. Christians worship and respond to a God who became a bloody mess on the cross to take away all your sins, and we're just responding back to him. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, the blood, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Now, my friend, please follow me on this one. This makes all the difference in the world in how you worship. Does it not? Does it not? You see, one approach to the worship of God is that you need to work God over. That is enormously performance-based. That is exhausting. You see, you should only show up for worship then when you feel good about it, when you got something to give. Christian worship, however, comes along to people who feel like you got nothing to give today, you had the worst week, you don't feel worthy, but Christian worship begins with, but you're responding to a God who worked himself down to you. Christian worship is not about how you work yourself up to God. Christian worship is a response to a God who worked himself down to save you. Save you. Did you notice Exodus chapter 20? Before God issues any laws, any commands, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of slavery. You know, God is summoning and calling worship by first presenting his miraculous work. This is how Christian worship works. Miracle before morality. Wonder before worship. Salvation before your sanctification. God's own work for you before you do any good work. It's responsive. It's responsive. You see, if it's responsive, it's not as exhausting. If it's responsive, it's not transactional. If it's responsive, surely it's not manipulative. And by the way, if you're used to approaching your God in a transactional, exhausting, manipulative way, it does bleed into all your relationships. But if you do get used to approaching your God because of his grace for you, his grace for you, and you're used to responding to grace, oh, I assure you, that'll bleed into all your relationships too. Regulated, regulated. God has some prescriptions and orders and how he want, wants us to worship him. Second is responsive. Here's third, here's third. Reflective. Reflective. Worship reflects our current understanding, our conception, and our experience of God. As I just mentioned in under-responsive, if you understand the gospel, it makes all the difference in the world in how you worship. And here it is. It shows up right here. You see, if you understand the gospel, if you understand what you're doing in worshiping God, it will affect how you worship. In other words, how you worship today reflects whom you worship. How we together as Christ Central worship God is enormously telling it's witnessing, it is reflective of the God we worship. There's actually no way around that. 
how we worship reflects whom we worship. And if it be true that Christian worship is a response to the grace of God in salvation, to the glory of God in salvation, how can then or how should we worship? Let's turn to the book of Hebrews. Just a couple verses here. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. And here the author instructs us. He instructs us in how we should worship. 12, 28, and 29. I'll read it for us. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. There it is. God actually, this author tells us, this is acceptable worship. Meaning other worship is not acceptable. I mean, there is such a thing as proper worship, improper worship. There is such a thing as pleasing worship and displeasing worship. There's acceptable worship and non-acceptable worship. How? With reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. I noticed two traits right there. If you want to offer acceptable worship, to reflect the kind of God that we worship. Grateful and reverence and awe. Gratitude and gravity. Gladness and sobriety. This is reflective of the kind of God that we worship. Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox traditions in worship tend to reflect. I spent a whole year, year and a half out in Eastern Europe, made a tour of so many old burnt out cathedrals, dead Orthodox churches, majestic cathedrals that have no people worshiping in it anymore. But what do these cathedrals and their styles of worship convey? God is transcendent. God is majestic. There is austerity through the lofty and distant architecture. Their liturgy, their worship service order is enormously orchestrated. It is precise. And you are surrounded with the few but very serious faces and sounds. Well, now in contemporary evangelical services in America, God here seems to be very, very near Extremely intimate, approachable, touchable, spontaneous, even chatty and comfy. Contemporary worship here in America wants high fives, victory, excitements, elations, highs, and happy moments. While traditional and ancient worship traditions are, I think, more in touch with the realities of life, of suffering and loss and sin and frailties and sorrow. One worship tradition and style tends to be very energetic and ecstatic and expressive. Another worship tradition and style tends to be incredibly quiet and thoughtful and deep. Well, it should be both. Well, it should be both. Because God is like that. One tradition and style tends to be maybe sometimes overly dramatic, even human-produced while the other is just dead, dull, and boring. It should be neither, because God is neither. Well, my friends, we've got a long way to go to be a Reformed church, because we're constantly reforming. Constantly reforming. How you worship God today reflects whom you worship, whom you worship. One without the other in these traditions and styles I believe under-reflects and under-prepares you for life 
and most importantly, under-reflects God. To worship God in spirit and truth, I think, is in the tension of both. Regulated, responsive, reflective. Fourth, last one. The worship of God is relational. It's relational. You know, before Moses had the people sit down and he basically instructed them in the Ten Commandments of the Lord, God told them, gather all the people. Gather all the people. It's not like one-on-one sessions, private counseling sessions in a tent. Oh, let me just tell you in this room. No, he said, gather all the people together. And then they were told who they should worship and how they should worship him together. Relational. God wants the worship of his people in community and in covenantal commitments. God wants us to worship him, not on individual terms and preferences of timing, but his. Let me say that again. God wants his people to worship him on his preferences, his terms, his timing, not yours. Not yours. So if insofar as you are able, when we stand or sit, we've gotten rid of so many of those motions, but if you're able to stand or sit, you should stand and sit with the people and the body of Christ. He said, we have the audience of one. We have an audience of one here. We're worshiping and serving someone superior, far superior than ourselves, and we are all harmonizing. We're part of an orchestra. We're trying to work together. We're all moving together. This is the relational covenant community of God that's to please and worship a triune glorious God. We ought to cooperate and work together. We're not just doing it individually. Another example that I, you know, just have to press home is your pastor loves you. You know, I know today, of all days, right, it's like the toughest day. I, I see some people missing, of course. Spring forward, we just think, man, this is not from God. Spring forward is not from God. It's a human invention. Yeah, that's true. I don't like this day either. But I'll excuse you today, but, you know, there's some of you who come in late. Okay, there's some of you who come in late. My Lyft driver got lost of today of all days. And I came out five minutes late to the teacher service. But there's some of you come in late every Sunday. Like your arrival time is late. And you come in later. You come in later. And you come in later. And every Sunday you come in later. You think the first 14 or 20 minutes is something that doesn't really involve you. Can I just ask you, my friends, to consider? Do you know that when you arrive late every Sunday and you come later every Sunday, you are making it about you? That you're making it about you? Now hear me out. If you're a Christian believer, you should never make it about you. If you're not a Christian believer, you are free to do what you want. We welcome you. Just don't distract the worship service. We don't ask you to sing or pray or do anything. Don't give any money. Please don't. Just check out what Christianity is really about. But if you are part of the body and the family of Jesus Christ, do you honestly think that Sunday worship is about you? No, it's relational. It's covenantal. It's a community. And there's some other audience that's way more important than you. You know, I know the same people who arrive so late to this worship service, you would never arrive late to a movie. I know you can make it on time. You would never arrive late late to that game or that concert. What does it reflect about whom you worship when we are not relational and committed together in the worship of God. 
Oh, so when we sing and pray and confess our faith, when we exchange greetings and we hear the benediction together and we see the word of God together, it is for one another and for the audience of one. Oh, let me address the other thing. Well, pastor, there's just certain Sundays I feel so awful. I really don't feel like going to church that day to worship God. Can I tell you, if it is just about you, it's perfectly okay to miss that Sunday and several Sundays. I just am afraid for you that it might become habitual. If it's just about you, it's okay. But my friend, can you please consider, you know on the Sundays that you really feel like not going? Do you know that if it's not about you, but if it's relational, you know that someone is going to miss you? There is someone that cannot be touched apart from you. There is someone who cannot be spoken to to the way that you speak. There is someone who just even your high, your greeting, your singing, or your confessing of faith. Do you know that there is someone who actually needs you to be strengthened and blessed by and vice versa? Do you know that on the Sundays that you don't feel like going, maybe you could show up and maybe there is someone that you talk to randomly that actually does something that would really lighten your burden, encourage you, and sharpen you? My friend, the people of God, we're in this together as a family. We're bound together for eternity by the blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, of course, and in any family, you're going to have certain Sundays that you don't want to show up. But please, stop making it just about you. It's relational. It's relational. And I know that at our church, there's just one outstanding thing. For some of you, it might be an odd thing. But it's one outstanding thing because our worship service, our liturgy is so simple. It's so simple. But there's one thing that might stand out versus maybe some other churches you're familiar with. It's what we just did. It's called the Heidelberg Catechism. Or we do the Westminster Confession of Faith. Or we do the New City Catechism. Or we confess our faith through the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Let me just answer that question as we close. Well, we do it because I think all four R's are in action. All four guiding principles we are actually executing in worship service. Why do we catechize? Why do we confess our faith together? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13. Let me just answer the why real quick. 4, verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Apostle Paul says, why do we have church? Why do we all gather together? Well, one reason is that we want every Christian believer to be discipled and grow and mature to become just like Jesus Christ. We want you to hit full maturity. We want you to achieve and experience fullness in Jesus Christ. How do we do that? How do we do that? Well, to catechize, catechize literally means to teach biblical truth in an orderly, clear way. To catechize, and we know that you will not hit maturity without knowing the scriptures, catechism is a catchy good way in which we teach biblical truth in orderly, systematic ways so that we might fully mature. Let's project this next slide, which I think in my opinion, is the best quote or description of why churches should do any creeds or catechisms. It's by Carl Truman. 
former professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. That's where Daniel Penn graduated from. Let me read it for us. I do want to make the point here that Christians are not divided between those who have creeds and confessions and those who do not. Rather, they are divided between those who have public creeds and confessions that are written down and exist as public documents, subject to public scrutiny, evaluation, and critique. And those who have private creeds and confessions that are often improvised, unwritten, and thus not open to public scrutiny, not susceptible to evaluation, and crucially and ironically, not therefore subject to testing by scripture to see whether they are true. Carl Truman's point is, creeds and confessions are at least public, explicit, detailed documents, summaries of scriptural truth. If you go to a Christian friend or a Christian church that doesn't believe in any confessions or creeds or anything, and you ask them, what's your confession or creed? They're most likely to say something like this. We have no creed here but the Bible. We have no confession here but the Bible. We just believe what the Bible believes. But as soon as you ask, well, then tell me what the Bible says. Tell me what you believe about the Bible. Then they're going to try, but they're going to fumble. They're going to have to give you a confession or a creed themselves. It's just that it's not really well thought. It's just that it hasn't been tested over time. It's just that it isn't as articulate. It's just that it isn't as detailed. It's just that it's kind of improvised, is it not? And so the way that we catechize and confess our faith here at the church is to actually bless you. (laughs) Go figure. It's not to burden and bore you. It's actually to bless you. Because here's what catechisms do. They train and protect you in the faith. They train and protect you in the faith. There are many deceivers, 1 John tells us. There are many false messengers. There are many false religions. Do you know why false religions and false messengers actually work? They work because they sound similar to Christianity, or they take the name of Jesus, or they use even parts of the Bible, or they just may use the Bible. And they come close, but they're counterfeit. They use Christianese, but they're not Christian. Catechisms and confessions arose in history to combat heresies and errors who were taking souls apart. I mean, ruining lives. They wanted to speak and train people with the words of truth in love. Catechisms train and protect you. Second, catechisms humble you. And it'd be good in the American church these days that we take our medicine and dosage of some humility. Humble you. You know, a lot of American churches think they've arrived. A lot of American churches think that they do it better. You know, in the United Methodist Church, recently they had a controversial vote about whether they should allow practicing LGBTQ community to become clergy, to get ordained in the United Methodist Church. And if it was left up to the West, the progressive, educated, elite West, that vote should have surely passed. I expected that the United Methodist Church would have said, it is okay because of common culture, it's popular now, it's like the issue, we've got to allow practicing, non-repentant, LGBTQ community to become priests and pastors in our church. Do you know why that vote failed? Do you know why it didn't pass? Do you know why the United Methodist Church got humbled this last week? It's because we got millions and millions of African brothers and sisters from Liberia and Nigeria and throughout Africa where they're 
churches are just blowing up. They're booming. By the way, they got more Presbyterians there than in America. They got more Methodists there than in America. And they had professors and leaders stand up, basically say this. Well, we're not like you Americans. First of all, we will never trade our birthright in Jesus Christ for money. That's quite a blow. He says, we're not going to be bought off. And for the life of us, we wrestle with the scriptures, the scriptures, the scriptures. And we just can't let go of the scripture and the global church's teaching on this issue that to be faithful to Christ doesn't mean we hate. We're going to love our LGBTQ community, brothers and sisters, but we're not going to bend on this. And the vote failed because of African Christians who boldly and lovingly stood up to what the scriptures teach and they came out to humble the West. At one point, Dr. Jerry Kula, who's a United Methodist professor at a seminary in Liberia, he said, please, U.S. bishops, stop condescending and telling us to grow up. You progressive elite, stop telling us how to grow up. We know our scriptures. We know Jesus. And we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Humble you. Humble you. Hey, listen, as soon as CCSC thinks that, oh, we're just a church that's arrived, we got it right, we're the best, we're, I don't think anyone thinks like that anyways, but if you do, this is why we have catechisms and creeds. We had five elder candidates. I'm so happy to announce they've been studying, kind of stressing too, and praying with me for the last six months. They took ordination examinations. See, they have to get officially publicly scrutinized and tested. It's also our denomination's way to keep them humble. (laughs) And they took the test on Thursday and they passed. Praise God, all five elder candidates. Going to go through Monday through oral interviews. They had to read this book about this thick. It's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. Oh, it's not a fun book. I wouldn't use the word fun. But I'd use the word incredibly rich and deep. And they had to read it and study it. Do you know how long it took people in the past to formulate this document? The Westminster Confession of Faith. I commend it to you. I don't know if you've ever read it. You should. Because I just want you to know how much time was spent into it. They met over 1,100 times. Yeah, that's right. 1,100 meetings. I don't like four meetings. By the fifth one, I'm irritable. This is 1,100 sessions over five years by the most educated, erudite, and godly men. They had no social media then, too, so think about how much they read. And the Westminster Confession of Faith is there to dispel the notion, oh, the latest is the greatest. No, it's not. Sometimes it is. Like the Tesla, it seems like it is. But when it comes to these documents and historic, the latest is not the greatest. They're there to humble you. Last, catechisms become a part of you. Catechisms become a part of you. Oh, that's what we really want, especially for the next generation, do we not? Dorothy Sayers, in this uh, article entitled The Tools of Learning, she separates that childhood development into three stages of how children best learn at each stage. And she distinguishes them as parrot, pert, and poet. 
Dorothy Sayers, in The Lost Tools of Learning, distinguished three stages of childhood development as parrot, pert, and poet. And in the parrot stage, which is ages four through nine, children are capable of absorbing and they, they delight in memorizing most anything in small units, in bite-sized units. To be sure, they do not always understand what they are learning and memorizing, but they don't need to yet. They're in the parrot stage. I'm happy to share this little video from our family in the past. Can we play that at this point? Who made you? God. What else did God make? All things. Why did God make you in all things? For his glory. How do you glorify God? By keeping the word. What is sin? Bad. Bad? Why is it bad? Because by disobeying God. Who did they listen to more than God in the garden? Satan, the snake, you so bad. Satan, the snake, you so bad. I hope Taylor continues to grow and really think Satan the snake is so bad. I miss that stage. She was three there. Three. Adorable, is it not? You know what's not adorable? It's full-grown adults who don't know that. You know, when I went to seminary, truth be told, as your pastor, <laughs> I grew up in an Asian American church my whole life. I love the life of prayer. I love the life of sacrifice. I love the camaraderie. I love the community. I love the food. I love the spirituality. I am so indebted to the church I grew up at. But there was one thing I never developed, and I showed at seminary. When I showed up at the first class, I was surrounded by brilliant, educated people who grew up in Michigan and grew up throughout the world who had been catechized. And I quickly realized I was the dumbest in the class. I was last. I was, I was not just a little behind. I was like way behind. Way behind in how? I had never grown up as a parrot. And the next stage is a pert where they start asking questions and they start analyzing this data. And they ask mom and dad, well, what about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? Certain days you're good. You want to answer those questions. Other days you can't stand it. Stop talking to me. But it's a good stage. It's the pert stage. But the final stage is a poet where they discern and articulate and apprehend these rich biblical truths. Well, all I want for our church is something different and far more advanced than what I grew up with. And I'm not in any way diminishing what I grew up with. I am so thankful to God for what I grew up with. But I do think we can do a little more. Because we all speak English. We're not an immigrant church. We have children we can communicate with, who we can worship with, ask questions to, hear, and actually confess our sins to. Oh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, we'll close with this. Why we catechize. Why we catechize. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. My friend, for every person in this room, 
and wants experience, ecstasy, feeling, highs, change my life, great, wonderful. That's all I was after. But you can't get that without going in the knowledge and the truth and the data and the Bible and what the scriptures really teach us. This is a little bit why we worship and catechize the way we do. May God bless us in it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the riches of your word and for the way you train and protect us and humble us. And we know that you want this word to become a part of our lives. Holy Spirit, we pray that you will work powerfully in the ways that we want to grow. We want to reform and grow, Lord, as your people and how we worship you how we get to know you, and how we love you and experience you best. Hear us, we pray to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.